This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Ukraine's president says Russian troops have attacked a nuclear power station in Ukraine. Video shows flames and smoke engulfing the Zaporizhia power plant. Ukrainian officials say shelling on the plant began early Friday morning local time. President Zelensky called on the global community to put pressure on Vladimir Putin to end the attack. The nuclear station is the largest of its kind in Europe. It's responsible for 25 percent of Ukraine's power generation. Despite the facility coming under fire, the White House says there's no indication of elevated radiation levels. That's right. Russian tanks or artillery fired on Europe's largest nuclear power site. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has six reactors, three of them running at the time of the attack, in the dark of night, near Ednohar in southeast Ukraine. A fire erupted at an administrative building there had burned for hours while firefighters were prevented from responding by live fire from the Russian troops. Earlier in the day, Photos showed crowds of unarmed Ukrainians, including plant operators, blocking the road to the power complex against Russian armored vehicles. The Russian army came by night anyway. No one was killed. Eventually, the fire was put out. No reactors were damaged. Staff managed emergency shutdown. Europe, Russia, and the world were spared being sprayed by deadly radioactivity for a second time since the Chernobyl nuclear explosion in the Ukraine in 1986. This unspeakable brush with disaster is actually far smaller than global climate change, which continues to build all along. In our second half hour, we speak with an author for the second big report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This time, they admit that scientists greatly underestimated the speed and damage of global warming. In fact, A survey of scientists expect Earth will rocket up past 3 degrees C this century. Nobody wants to talk about what that means. Stay tuned for my interview with Dr. Tymon McPherson. Since the Chernobyl disaster and the quadruple reactor meltdowns at Fukushima, Japan, the world went back to sleep. French President Emmanuel Macron reversed policy, announcing plans for 12 new reactors, this time to save the climate. Despite Three Mile Island and a hundred near misses since, the Biden administration also announced plans for a new nuclear reactor building binge. Desperate Greens like Stuart Brand, James Hansen, and Mark Linus are all pushing nuclear as the climate answer. And I agree nuclear power could be a possible energy source for an intelligent species. Sadly, we are not that species. As we see again this week in Ukraine... We can and do break out into mass madness on a regular basis. We are too unstable for this technology. Always on the ball, Mariah Gallardin of TUC Radio found activists who warned about high nuclear dangers in the Ukraine war a week before this latest incident. As they explain, extreme risk continues. For example, if the Russians decide to turn off power to major cities as part of their siege for conquest, The lack of load balance could put all of Ukraine's remaining reactors into emergency backup mode. When power lines are destroyed by war, nuclear plants depend on backup generators and continuous truckloads of diesel fuel. Without that, they overheat and explode, exactly as the four reactors in Fukushima, Japan, did. 
We now go to TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Radio EcoShock. TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Ukraine is on the brink of a nuclear catastrophe. Linda Pence Gunter and Dr. Ira Helfand. Quote, We are in an unprecedented situation. For the first time, a war is being fought in a region where there are operating nuclear reactors. This presents an extreme risk to human life, unlike anything we have seen in previous wars. That's a statement from Beyond Nuclear on February 25, 2022. For a relatively small country, the nuclear statistics are impressive. Ukraine operates 15 reactors, ranking 7th in the world in 2020. The single largest nuclear power plant in Europe is in Ukraine. Ukraine's power sector is the 12th largest in the world in terms of installed capacity. 54 gigawatts are providing over 50% of Ukraine's electricity. Linda Pence-Gunter presents a list of catastrophes that can befall a nuclear power plant, from taking direct, intentional, or accidental missile strikes, to the collapse of the grid, to operating personnel being unable or unwilling to come to work. Along with Japan, Ukraine has experienced a nuclear power plant meltdown. The Chernobyl disaster occurred in 1986. The battle to avert a greater catastrophe and contain the contamination ultimately involved over 500,000 workers and cost an estimated 18 billion rubles, crippling the Soviet economy. And like Fukushima, the site of the destroyed power plant requires permanent supervision and intervention, now and in the future. The International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War held a Zoom meeting at the end of February 22 with presentations from Linda Pence-Gunter and Dr. Ira Helfand. They were alerting the world to the consequences of war damage to any of the 15 nuclear reactors or of an intentional strike with a nuclear weapon on a major city on either side of the conflagration. Linda Pence-Gunter is the international specialist at Beyond Nuclear. They educate and activate the public about the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons and the need to abandon both to safeguard our future. The moderator was Dr. Olga Mironova, professor at Sechenov University, Moscow. Here is Linda Pence-Gunter. Thanks to IPPNW for inviting me, and to all of you attending today, um, greetings from the nuclear-free city of Tacoma Park, Maryland. So I'm going to discuss the uh, six possible disaster scenarios and the ensuing humanitarian consequences should any of Ukraine's 15 operating reactors become embroiled in a war. And I'll also look at the risks posed by Chernobyl and the exclusion zone. 
First, I want to make a general observation. The presence of 15 reactors in Ukraine or any nuclear reactors anywhere automatically adds to the medical risks for the surrounding populations should something else major happen. And that something else need not be a war. We are already seeing the ravages of the climate crisis and how this can knock out essential power supplies. Nuclear power plants are already vulnerable. They are more so if caught up in a war that could cause the grid to go down. There are 15 reactors in Ukraine grouped at four sites. They are Russian VVER reactors of 1,000 megawatts each, and there's the closed Chernobyl nuclear plant in the north, which I'll talk about at the end of my presentation. So under my disaster scenario, number one, none of the reactors are directly in the war zone, but the war takes out the electric grid, whether by accident or deliberate sabotage, including even through a cyber attack. If the grid goes down, the nuclear power operators will try to shut the reactors down. But if they lose on-site power as well, should that backup power fail as it did at Fukushima, for example, things can get far more dire. So just loss of power at reactors, even far from the battle zone, could be a serious outcome of a war in Ukraine. So of most concern, given its size and location, is Zaporozhye. It's the largest nuclear power station in Europe with a net capacity of 5,700 megawatts. The Zaporozhye reactors were already vulnerable during the Crimea invasion in 2014 when a far-right Ukrainian group tried to gain entry. They are about 200 kilometers from the Donbass conflict zone. Under disaster scenario number two, the plant is embroiled in the war zone but not attacked or hit. Under these circumstances, the nuclear power plant workers may fear for their lives and the lives of their families. They would want to and should evacuate with their loved ones. But what happens if they do? The answer is they can't, or not all of them. Nuclear power plants, even under normal circumstances, are never walk away safe. Some workers would have to stay behind. If the nuclear workforce evacuates, you set in motion a cascade of meltdowns at that site, whether or not it is directly attacked. Which brings us to disaster scenario number three. What if one or more of these reactors takes an accidental hit from a bomb or missile or even just artillery fire? Then we could be talking about another Chernobyl or actually multiple Chernobyls. A hit could destroy the reactor immediately. That's really the worst of all possible outcomes. But even if the reactor is severely damaged or disabled, then you start to lose coolant and the reactor heats up, the fuel rods are exposed, and explosive gases are created. One spark and you could see an explosion as we did at three of the Fukushima reactors. Some of the workforce may be injured or killed or struggling to shut down the remaining reactors. And added to that, if the spent fuel pools boil and evaporate, exposing the rods, these could catch fire. And a fuel pool fire is even worse than the reactor exploding because spent fuel pools contain a far hotter radioactive infantry than the reactor itself. Those radioactive releases would be dispersed across thousands of miles. We've already had a glimpse of what that would look like for human health after Chernobyl. So here we can see the plume pathway for just radioactive cesium-137 resulting from the 1986 Chernobyl explosion. 
The worst affected areas were Belarus, Russia and Ukraine, but the plume extended across all of Europe. And you can see that not all the hotspots are concentrated closest to Chernobyl either. But this time it would be worse. Ukraine's 15 reactors are all much older than Chernobyl Unit 4 was in 1986. They have bigger radioactive inventories and they are all multiple reactor sites. People all across Europe would be affected. My fourth disaster scenario is a deliberate attack on the reactors, an act of sabotage to disable them, or even a cyber attack. We know nuclear sites are vulnerable to cyber attack. We've seen it before with the 2010 Stuxnet cyber attack on 15 of Iran's nuclear facilities, including the Natanz uranium enrichment plant. But would Russia really use reactors as a weapon of war allowing them to deliberately melt down and potentially contaminate wide portions of Europe. This would seem like a scaled-down exercise in mutually assured destruction, given prevailing winds would likely blow much of the radiation across Russia and Belarus. A deliberate attack on a nuclear plant would have much the same outcome as an accidental one. It would release a massive plume of radioactivity and would be a medical and humanitarian disaster of monumental and likely completely unmanageable proportions. What would that mean for human health? We should have a guide from the example of Chernobyl, but that there was, I would say, a scandalous and even heartless international effort by agencies like the IAEA with vested interests in minimizing the disaster to do just that. So we must look to independent sources to get a truer sense of the numbers. And here we must remind ourselves that with Chernobyl, we are talking about just one relatively new reactor, not the multiple ones now in Ukraine containing far more radioactivity. I would say that three of the best sources on the real health impacts are IPPNW Germany's 20 years after Chernobyl report, Ian Fairley's Torch report, and Kate Brown's book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. And then you just take their numbers and imagine an orders of magnitude worse situation if, let's say, one or more of the Zaporozhye reactors are hit, whether accidentally or deliberately, and melt down. And that's not where it ends. Looking at a specific sample of Chernobyl victims, Dr. Vladimir Vertilecki, a physician and geneticist who conducted post-Chernobyl research in Polisia, Ukraine, found birth defects and other health disturbances among not only those who were adults at the time of the Chernobyl disaster, but their children who were in utero at the time and, most disturbingly, their later offspring. So if reactors are breached during a war in Ukraine, that war, in a medical sense, will never be over. But what about the Chernobyl exclusion zone? Could it and the nuclear site itself get caught up in a war? This is scenario number five. The destroyed Chernobyl Unit 4, along with 200 metric tons of uranium, plutonium, liquid fuel and irradiated dust, are encased in a sarcophagus completed in 2019. But that sarcophagus, which is only supposed to last for 100 years, could collapse under the vibrations of explosions in a war zone. That would loft radioactive dust into the atmosphere, causing yet another major health crisis. And there is one more huge threat to this area, as well to, as to any war zone involving nuclear plants, and that is fire. Disaster scenario number six. We've already seen literally hundreds of fires in the Chernobyl zone. 
Sadly, many started deliberately. Under ever more extreme climate conditions, wildfires will get larger and more frequent. In 2020, a forest fire that broke out within the Chernobyl zone threatened to reach the plant site. The Chernobyl Fire Department struggled a long time to contain that fire. Forest fires reloft and redistribute radiation trapped in the soil. The 2020 fire increased radiation levels to 16 times higher than they had been previously. War clearly raises the risk of fires. And the Chernobyl zone is a tinderbox. Dr. Tim Mousseau and his team discovered that dead wood and leaf litter on the forest floors is not decaying properly, likely because the microbes and other organisms that drive the process of decay are reduced or gone due to their own prolonged exposure to radiation. Equally, wildfires triggered by war close to any of Ukraine's operating reactors could have dire consequences. Even under just normal reactor operating circumstances, fire is considered the bulk of the risk for a core melt. So in concluding, I just reiterate what I said at the beginning. War in regions where there are nuclear reactors raise the dangers to almost unimaginable heights. All of this, in my view, strengthens the argument to permanently close and dismantle the world's nuclear power plants as soon as possible. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Linda, for your brilliant presentation. And we are now having questions. And I think there are three questions to you. The first one is why are power plants dependent on the electrical grid when they are the power source? Yeah, they generate electricity, but they don't generate it for their own facility. So they are reliant on incoming power from the grid to conduct their operations, you know, to boil water <laughs> fundamentally, you know, to split the atom to boil water to make steam, to turn the turbine, to create electricity. They do have on-site backup power, which is what I referred to briefly. And these are often uh, diesel generators, which is what we saw in Fukushima, for example, you know, which was not the cause of that tragedy. It was a result of it. When the earthquake happened, it disabled the off-site power. So they lost off-site power. When the tsunami hit, that took out the on-site power because the diesel generators were just were actually stored below grade uh, and so they were flooded and so then you go to the last resort which is battery backup which is why you saw some of those workers rushing out into the parking lot and taking batteries out of cars you know that's desperation and that didn't work so that's that's the cascade of uh, you know problems that happen as soon as you lose off-site power we also have a question from Lars Pomeyer. Are U.S. companies involved in the Ukraine nuclear industry or West European? My understanding is that although the, the reactors they have right now, all the Russian VVER reactors, there was a contract made with Westinghouse for an AP1000 reactor, but I don't think that it has progressed very far. So at the moment, there's nothing under construction there, but there, there definitely are, uh, op, you know, there opportunities there for marketing American designs to uh, other countries, including Ukraine. And now I'm so pleased to invite our health fund, who is the immediate past president of IPPNW and the co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. And Ira is going to talk today about the escalation to nuclear weapons. And thank you all for attending this briefing this morning. You know, Barry and Linda have just described eloquently the catastrophic humanitarian impact 
that would result from uh, a conventional war uh, in Ukraine. Um, but as the military exercise is being carried out today involving nuclear capable forces make clear, uh, this is fundamentally a conflict between two power blocks, Russia and NATO, which are armed with enormous numbers of nuclear weapons. And so we need to consider the possibility that this conflict could escalate to a nuclear war, as unimaginable as that is to all of us. It is quite unlikely that either side would deliberately choose to engage with nuclear weapons initially, but it is important for us to understand that both sides in this potential conflict have military policies which envision and expect the use of battlefield nuclear weapons if they are necessary to avoid a defeat in a conventional war. And so it is conceivable that a battlefield nuclear weapon could be introduced into the picture. And the problem is that once even a single battlefield nuclear weapon is used, it is impossible to predict what would happen next. But there is every reason to believe that the situation would escalate to a more widespread use of nuclear weapons. That is, in fact, what has happened in most of the tabletop war game exercises that were conducted, at least on the NATO side, uh, during the nuclear weapons era. We have enormous difficulty imagining what nuclear war would look like. We have the images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These are very powerful warnings to us of, of the power of these weapons. But we have to understand that a modern nuclear war between the United States, NATO on the one side, Russia on the other, would be totally different than what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Each of those cities was attacked with one bomb of about 15 to 20 kilotons. In a modern war, cities would be attacked with many weapons, uh, and they would be much larger. The warheads on Russian SS-18 missiles are anywhere from 25 to 50 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. The weapons carried by U.S. Trident submarines are 30 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. We don't know the exact targeting strategy of either side, but it is widely believed that major cities like Moscow or New York or Washington, London, Paris, would be targeted with 5, 10, 15, perhaps more nuclear warheads. Again, each in the range of perhaps 25 to 50 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. And this is something which we have great difficulty conceiving or, or imagining. We have used a model historically of a single 20 megaton explosion, which happens to uh, very accurately reflect the damage that would be done by 10 500 kiloton weapons of the sort that are on SS-18 and Trident submarine uh, missiles. And so let me describe that to you very briefly. Within a thousandth of a second of the detonation of this weapon, a fireball would form reaching out for two miles in every direction, four miles across. Within this area, the temperatures would reach the same level as the surface of the sun, and everything would be vaporized. Buildings, trees, people, the upper level of the earth itself would disappear to a distance of four miles in every direction. The explosion would generate winds greater than 600 miles per hour. Mechanical forces of this magnitude destroy anything that human beings can build. To a distance of six miles in every direction, the heat would be so intense that automobiles would melt. And to a distance of 16 miles in every direction, the heat would still be so intense that everything flammable would burn. Paper, cloth, wood, plastic, it would all ignite. Hundreds of thousands of fires 
which over the next half hour would coalesce into a firestorm, 32 miles across. Within this entire area, temperatures would rise to 1400 degrees Fahrenheit, 800 degrees Celsius. All of the oxygen would be consumed and every living thing would die. In the case of a city like New York, we are talking about anywhere from 12 to 15 million people dead in a half an hour. And this level of destruction would be visited on every major city in the United States, in Russia, much of Canada, much of Europe. A study that we published in 2002 showed that if just 300 of the warheads mounted on SS-18 missiles got through to urban targets in the United States, something between 75 and 100 million people would die in the first half hour. The same level of destruction would occur in Russia from a U.S. attack. And not only would these large numbers of people be killed instantly, but the entire infrastructure on which population depends would be destroyed. The internet, the electric grid, the food distribution system, the public health system, the banking system, all of it would be gone. And over the months that followed this initial attack, the vast majority of the surviving population in both the United States and Russia and in much of Europe would also die from radiation exposure, from epidemic disease, from hunger, starvation, and from exposure. But these are just the direct effects of these weapons. There's also an enormous climate impact which must be understood. A large-scale war between NATO and Russia, using all of the weapons currently deployed, could put up to 150 million tons of soot into the atmosphere, according to studies carried out uh, over the last two decades by Brian Toon and Alan Robach and their colleagues. This would block out the sun and drop temperatures across the entire planet up to 18 degrees Fahrenheit within the interior regions of North America and Eurasia, it would be even colder. Temperatures would drop 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. We have not seen temperatures on this planet that cold since the coldest moment of the last ice age. And under these conditions, all of the ecosystems which have evolved since the end of that ice age would collapse. Food production would stop. The vast majority of the human race would starve to death. Even a much smaller nuclear war between NATO and Russia could cause severe climate disruption. As few as four or 500 warheads would cause enough cooling to disrupt uh, agriculture across the globe and cause a dramatic decline in food available to people, a global famine, and an event that would kill hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, and end civilization as we know it. Now, we have to understand that as the great powers play out their game of chicken today over Ukraine, this is what is at stake. And we need to have a fundamental change in the way nations are conducting themselves. A war in Ukraine is absolutely intolerable and we must take whatever steps we can to prevent that. And I think we have to understand that we have a limited ability to affect events in the current crisis. Events are moving too quickly and we don't have adequate leverage. But what we can undertake and must undertake 
is an effort to make sure that if we are lucky enough to survive the current moment, we are never in this situation again. The nations of the world must come up with a different paradigm for relating to each other. This idea that you know, great powers compete to see who ends up on top of the heap is just not acceptable in the modern world. It's possible one country or another may end up king of the mountain, but the mountain that they sit on top may be a radioactive ash pile. We have to deal with the climate crisis. We have to prepare for the next pandemic. We have to address the ongoing problems of economic and racial inequality and injustice. And we can only do that by adopting a cooperative approach in international relationships. Most important, we need to eliminate nuclear weapons once and for all. We cannot afford to have this incredible threat hanging over all of humanity. And the good news is that that is something that we can do. And we can do it relatively easily. Nuclear weapons are not a force of nature. They do not require a major restructuring of, of human civilization as addressing the climate crisis does. It would be a relatively simple thing if the nations of the world made the decision to eliminate their nuclear weapons to in fact eliminate them. And that is what we must work for. I generally have approached this issue with a great amount of hope, especially since the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was signed and entered into force in January of last year. I think at this moment, we are all having a lot of difficulty balancing the hope with the horror. But again, if we are able to get past this current moment, we must dedicate ourselves with increased energy and determination to eliminating these weapons once and for all, so that all of the human family can move forward to address the other problems that we face and provide a safe environment where our children and our grandchildren and our descendants beyond that can live and prosper. Thank you. That was Dr. Ira Helfand of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. Helfand also is co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility. He and Linda Pence-Gunter participated in a Zoom meeting on the topic of war in Eastern Europe. They met on February 19, 2022. Beyond Nuclear aims to educate and activate the public about the connections between nuclear power and nuclear weapons and the need to abandon both to safeguard our future. On February 28, 2022, Beyond Nuclear issued a letter signed by physicians who called for a ceasefire in Ukraine that would allow international peacekeepers to be sent to safeguard the country's 15 nuclear reactors. Here is some of the text, quote, Of all the obvious dangers that come with war, one of the most far-reaching in the current Russia-Ukraine conflict has been woefully underappreciated. As physicians, we feel it is our duty to bring the imminent danger of a nuclear meltdown from a damaged Ukrainian reactor to public consciousness and urge that steps be taken by the international community to safeguard them. We also strongly condemn Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons against the West in retaliation for economic sanctions. Any use of nuclear weapons could easily lead to an all-out nuclear war, ending life on planet Earth 
as we know it. That was an urgent appeal for a ceasefire in Ukraine issued by Beyond Nuclear on February 28, 2022. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Geleuden. Thank you for listening. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. A huge new report warns of terrible impacts as the climate shifts. Some are permanent. From 67 countries, 270 research scientists work through masses of measurements, models, and mountains of data. They can now see who, what, and where the changing of the world's climate will strike. This report is need to know. It's called Climate Change 2022 Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability, It is from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, but this time, I think they got it closer to right. No single human can comprehend this shift from normal to extremes, so we took this one starting point. Half of humanity now live in cities. We enter this major summary from Working Group 2 with an expert on urban ecology, including climate change and cities. Simon McPherson is Professor of Urban Ecology and Director of the Urban Systems Lab at the New School in New York City. He published articles in top scientific journals and helps edit the nature journal Urban Sustainability. You may have read his work in the New York Times or The Guardian. From New York, Timon McPherson, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to talk to you, Alex. Well, as I have told you in email, previous IPCC reports always seem too far behind the climate-driven extremes that we've already experienced, and so I, I don't often cover them, but this one seems a bit different. Is the scientific community starting to admit previous estimates of climate damage were underestimates, and why should we listen now? It's a good question. I think it's important to understand what the IPCC is actually doing the process is really an assessment of the scientific literature, right? And so what we're able to say and what we have said coming out in this most recent report from Working Group 2 is based on the rapid rise in adaptation literature, the really exponential expansion in understanding what kinds of climate-driven extreme events we can actually attribute to climate change. And so the difference between this report and previous report eight years ago is really a sea change in the scientific literature that's assessing the impacts of climate change already and uh, what we know about them. So it may seem that there's really a point of departure in terms of understanding the true magnitude and scale of the impacts and risks that are facing regions all around the world. It is a sea change, but it's also based on the fact that we know more now than we knew before. So I just wanted to kind of be clear a little bit about the process here is that what we can say is what we know from the literature. That's what's in the report. It's a synthesis of that over the last many years. 
And what we are seeing is that there are both current rising impacts and risks in regions all around the world, really dramatic examples of this in a number of city regions, and that the projections for how those risks and impacts may change is definitely going to increase over the next couple of decades because of the emissions that are already built into the climate system and the amount of warming that's already built into the next couple of decades. In your 2018 book, Resilient Urban Futures, you argued for a positive vision for cities rather than planning for catastrophes, and that's it. But this IPCC report seems loaded with predictions of increasing catastrophic events, some of which will hit great urban centers. What do you think now? I think it's essential that we have a vision of the future that's positive, that there is one that we can actually lay out a series of goals and strategies that we want to get through. So what is our shared vision? What is the vision for a more sustainable future, a more equitable future, a more just and resilient future? There's really no way to move along a positive trajectory for our future without actually having a vision of that. So I don't see a disjunct between, on the one hand, helping to work with communities, with cities, with planners, with all sorts of diverse stakeholders to really start to articulate what that needs to be what it needs to be in terms of transforming infrastructure, what uh, that vision needs to be in terms of the way even we transform the governance of our cities and our societies so that they can deliver on those kinds of goals. And yet at the same time, we need to have a clear understanding of what the likelihood is of risks and impacts that our communities, our cities, our regions are going to face. So these two are important to have together, a realistic understanding of what's coming in the near term and a vision for where we want to get to as a way of building an adaptation and resilience to those kinds of climate impacts that the report lays out. Well, looking at this report through the lens of cities, why don't we start with the more developed countries like in America, Europe, or Japan, or Australia? When we look through the Working Group 2 report just released, what are the key challenges for these more wealthy cities in the coming decades? Well, one of them is really to understand that climate change is a threat multiplier that's going to enhance current vulnerabilities. Because one of the things that we see in the cities that in the, in the kind of um, areas that you mentioned is that there's already built-in vulnerability because of the way that we've designed and built our cities. We've designed them so that they're unequal. We've built in infrastructure that isn't resilient to the kinds of climate changes that we have now. So we know that we're going to have to retrofit and redesign certain aspects of cities remake certain kinds of infrastructure, uh, whether that's raising roads or rethinking housing design so that it can be able to adapt to the kinds of extreme rainfall or coastal flood or extreme heat that our cities are going to be facing in the coming future. Now, of course, that depends on how fast and how deeply we make cuts in carbon emissions, because what we really have to retrofit and rebuild cities for is going to depend on the global climate hazard how severe it is, which has everything to do with whether or not we can limit this to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century, or whether we end up at a two or two and a half degree warmer world. That two degree difference from 1.5 is really dramatic in terms of the kinds of climate extreme events that cities are going to be facing. What about cities in the Middle East or the tropics? One of the things I'm kind of amazed by in this report, and I hope this really stands out to people, is that when we look at the next couple of decades of the amount of climate change that's already built into our system, the amount of warming that's already built into the system, some areas 
are not going to be able to adapt. And especially if we move beyond a one and a half degree world, as soon as we start moving into a two and a two and a half degree world, small island nations, polar regions, mountain regions may have very little ability to adapt to the kinds of climate changes that are going to be coming in those regions. So this is a pretty serious concern. And I think the report is trying to really highlight that in a way that both engages the need to do deep and rapid cuts in emissions for all nations around the world, uh, as well as to emphasize the fact that we have to start building what the report calls climate resilient development, that we have to really bring in adaptation and resilience into every single aspect of planning and design. That's going to be essential in order to make sure that some of these places that are likely to get very hot in some parts of the world, 16 times as many people may be exposed to extreme heat, for example, than they were in the in historical baselines. That's going to be very difficult to adapt to if we don't start building in those adaptive mechanisms right now and across all kinds of urban planning design uh, and architecture. We talk about making plans, but that depends on who we are, because there's all these, well, maybe a billion people uncounted. The nonprofit Habitat for Humanity estimates almost one in four urban dwellers are outside the city planning and services, and you can call them informal settlements or slums. We don't know the real population. When record storm surges and droughts and heat records and floods reach them, really, is there any planning or adaptation going on? Is it possible? I think informal settlements and a lot of these communities where for many, many decades, people have been placed in locations that are prone to environmental harms, that are prone to these kinds of climate risk and impacts. Some of these areas are going to become uninhabitable and we will need to find places that are safe. I think what the report really underlines is that we actually have to engage in new governance structures and building more innovative ways to plan safety for those who are more marginalized, for those who are more low income, and that have already been facing uh, both historic and current impacts from climate change disproportionately compared to wealthy. So this is true in many, many regions of, of the world. And the challenge that you're raising is not a small one. Right? It's one that's going to really, I think, force some radical changes in the priorities that we make in planning and the even governance structures that we have that are able to prioritize investments, to mobilize finance for uh, bringing clean water, food security uh, and climate resiliency into some of these areas that, as you say, are large and that have been already experiencing climate hazards. If we don't slash greenhouse gas emissions, we go for the high carbon pathway that we're currently on, could it come to the point where millions of people face the choice of death or migration? We're already seeing this kind of migration. Recent estimates, I think, show that somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million or more people have already been documented as uh, starting to move based on climate-induced risks. That's likely to increase one of the things that the report really highlights is that without deep cuts and rapid cuts in this next decade, the next 10 years are extremely crucial here in carbon emissions, that we will see much more climate-induced migration. This has a lot of potential impacts. It's not only that some places may become really difficult to adapt to, and one of the things that we're suggesting in the report is that it's very possible without limiting warming to 1.5 degrees or less, that as soon as we move to a potentially two-degree world, we will have areas 
that will not be able to adapt to the heat, drought, flooding kinds of extremes that they may face. That will drive more migration, and that is on its own a massive challenge. But I think this also means that we're going to have to think at national levels, at city levels, about how we build in part of our own adaptation planning in a way that can receive climate migrants and provide safe homes in new locations for them. So I'm just bringing up that this is actually more complex than simply some places may be uninhabitable or the risks will be so high that people will escape, that they will literally move. But we also have to understand what that's going to mean in terms of where they go and how we create safer places uh, for those people as they're trying to move away from unsafe places. Yes, in my opinion, this coming climate migration could make the migration out of the Ukraine look small, and it will be persistent. It will happen over decades. So it almost sounds like humans have to figure out how to repopulate the world to live in a new climate. I don't know what the future looks like. I don't think any any of us really do. And certainly the IPCC report is not predicting the future. But what we are is saying that the evidence that we have suggests that the next couple of decades are going to be difficult, that the climate impacts and risks are going to go up. And we have a window of opportunity to make sure that that doesn't continue until the end of the century and even beyond that, that we have a window of opportunity to both rapidly and deeply cut emissions and retrofit and even build new urban areas that are more adapted to the kinds of risks that we know are likely to come in the next couple of decades. If we do that, then we should, even if we overshoot 1.5 degrees, be able to bring down the global warming average to 1.5 degrees or less by the end of the century, stabilize the climate, and in the process of that, build new cities, retrofit existing cities in ways that can be more adapted to the kinds of climate risks and impacts that we're already facing right now. That may mean a reshuffling of a large percentage of the human population on the planet. Some of that shuffling is already happening. It's sort of a natural part of population growth. And so one of the difficult signals to really understand is how much of that is climate-induced and how much of it is induced by other kinds of uh, changes or even threats that people are reacting to. But certainly, we need to take the climate risks seriously and limit what really might be a driver, a climate driver of that kind of migration. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. We're speaking with Professor Tymon McPherson from the New School in New York City. And we're looking at the new IPCC report about climate vulnerability and impact in 2022. So, Tymon, here is the New York Times headline about this report. Climate change is harming the planet faster than we can adapt, UN. Well, the Working Group 2 report finds there are limits to what we can do to protect from climate changes. Talk to us about that, please. There are likely going to be areas of the world that if we don't cut emissions rapidly, and certainly that's one of the possible futures, not the optimistic one, that we will have areas of the world that are less able to adapt. I think that's kind of the difficult message that's coming out of this report, really, that there's something serious that we've got to take on here, which is the potential that there may be places in the world that aren't livable, that are simply too hot, too exposed to coastal flooding too exposed to long-term droughts, and they're simply not uh, places that we can have you know, high quality of life for people to live in those areas. 
that really changes, I think, the way we even, you know, imagine our reality. We're certainly moving into a century and, and squarely in the middle of a century where our climate is changing and changing very fast. So coming to grips with that, I think, is essential for us to, one, think about how we can both at a personal level in our communities, in our cities, radically transform our consumption patterns, um, ways in which we prioritize decarbonizing our lifestyles, but also building ways in which we can adapt to that in multiple, just across multiple sectors. I mean, let's just be specific, right? This may mean that we are going to have to raise the height of roads and build ways in which to convey water through cities in a more safe way really building cities in a way that they can live with water in areas that are prone to flooding. I'm in New York City. We've had really devastating impacts from uh, cloudburst extreme rainfall events last year. And one of the things that's on the table is to try to understand how our road infrastructure has to shift to actually convey water through the city in a way that's safe and doesn't cause uh, harm both to housing and people and other critical services that they rely on. It means we have to think about how we can have building facades and building materials that reflect heat instead of trap heat. These are not new technologies. These are things that we already have on the shelf and we can deploy, but they have to be prioritized. They have to be incentivized and we have to mobilize the finance to make this normal and not a special case in the way that we're building cities now. This growth of cities that we're seeing, which is coincident with the rise of climate change and perhaps even one of the major drivers of climate change, is also an opportunity for us to harness that growth for a new kind of urban development on the planet in this urban century, for a climate resilient development that understands the risks and really rethinks the way that we build and design cities so that they can be more livable in this warmer future that we're headed into. Well, there are critics of this new report, and hey, science is based on self-criticism. Uh, one of the factors that seems to be missing, there's almost nothing about the fossil fuel industry itself and our popular addiction to those fuels. Why not? It's part of the structure of the IPCC, frankly. The report that is coming out in just a few weeks, which is the report from Working Group 3, will be addressing exactly that question. What is it that we have to do to deliver a decarbonized economy? What is it that we have to do to mitigate the carbon emissions that is driving this kind of climate change that's been clearly attributed to um, anthropogenic causes? That's really the responsibility of the second working group. And not everyone knows this, but the IPCC has three working groups. The first one is really understanding the climate hazards, and that's where we get the baseline projections from of what are, is the range of scenarios. This report is focused on risks, vulnerabilities, and adaptation options. And the third report, which comes out in a few weeks, is really focused on the mitigation side of this. So it's not left out. It's simply not the purview of working group two. And you will hear much more about what we need to do and what we can do to decrease greenhouse gas emissions and control the rapid growth in warming across the planet. The top scientific journal Nature just published a summary article about this report by Jeff Tolufson. He says, quote, Top scientists are skeptical that nations will rein in global warming. Timon, is that accurate for this collective work, and, and do you agree personally? 
there is, again, no true consensus of what the future is. It has everything to do with both how well we're able to adapt and really live in a warmer climate, in a warmer world, as well as how fast and rapid we're able to decrease carbon emissions, all greenhouse gas emissions, actually, to limit that amount of warming. So the difference between what we may need to find really innovative ways to adapt to for a 1.5 degree world or a two degree world or two and a half degree world are very different. That report, I think, is interesting, though, in that when you talk to climate scientists, there's not that much optimism overall, given what we see in the commitments of nation states to deliver a 1.5 degree or less warmer world. And that's why you see this general pattern among those that were surveyed in that study that three degree seems more likely. Now, why is that? Why do we think that? That's because the pattern that we're on, that's the trend line that we're seeing. If you just map the last couple of decades of what carbon emissions look like and you extend that line forward into the future, it looks roughly like a three degree world, which by every single study that we've assessed in this report shows a world that will be very difficult to adapt to that has climate extremes that frankly, many people don't even wanna talk about. So that's obviously what we have to avoid. But I think what you're seeing is this extension of the present into the future that says we could end up in a much warmer world than any of us want to face. And exactly that recognition is why it's so paramount that the next five and 10 years that we are mobilizing the political will, the financial capacity to both decarbonize all aspects of human life on this planet in a way that can decrease greenhouse gas emissions and really limit that warming and take into account the fact that a certain amount of that warming is already built into the system. And so we have to adapt anyway. There is no way we are not going to have to adapt to a warmer world, at least for the next couple of decades. What else in this report would you like to tell our listeners about? I think maybe something we haven't talked that much about is the disproportionate impacts on vulnerable communities. Who's really bearing the brunt of climate-driven extreme events, whether it's flooding or heat waves or drought or even the interaction between air pollution? In cities all around the world, it's low-income minorities and immigrant communities who are really bearing the brunt of climate change. I think this isn't just something we have to recognize. It's that we have to build into the way in which we prioritize planning, prioritize policies, prioritize funding that is flowing to build in adaptation into our urban and peri-urban and rural environments in ways that prioritizes those who need it most. That is essential for an inclusive and equitable planet, and certainly for the kinds of things we say we want out of a more sustainable world, or is it a more livable city? It has to be inclusive, and it has to be one that is addressing the inequities in who is most affected by climate change. Simon, you just returned from a lecture. What are you teaching your students at the new school? Well, I just came out of a class um, called Urban Resilience, and the focus is really to try to understand the complicatedness of cities so that we can manage and plan them to be more adapted, to be more resilient, so that they can deliver equitable futures, more livable futures in an inclusive way. And that actually requires understanding that complexity of cities. It means we're, we're trying to talk about how do we shift governance? What is the role of engineers and engineering and transforming our infrastructure to be more flexible and adaptive to an uncertain future? It means thinking about the role of nature 
and the connection of humans to nature, the potential for conserving, restoring, and investing in nature in cities and around cities as a way to cool our cities, as a way to absorb stormwater and decrease the impacts of climate change. So one of the things I'm trying to get a handle on with my students is how do we do all of these things and understand the way they interact so that we're not, for example, building a certain kind of housing that might be resilient to one challenge, but isn't to another, or we're not investing in planting trees, but the wrong species that can't adapt to a warmer world. So they don't actually deliver the cooling benefits that we're planting them for in the first place. These kinds of complexities are really important to get right so that we're not investing and adaptation options that actually become maladaptive later. From the New School in New York City, we've been speaking with Tymon McPherson, Professor of Urban Ecology. Find links to the UN IPCC report, Climate Change 2022 Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability, in my show blog at ecoshock.org. The report offers lots of ways for you to access it, including some easy summaries, so give it a chance. Tymon, thank you for sharing your time with us. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here and talk. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Yes, the world has gone crazy for a time. Take some comfort knowing that happened all through history, during and after pandemics. In the Middle Ages, after the Black Plague, Europeans murdered more Jews and women, calling them witches. Wars during and after pandemics are common. So if you are feeling unbalanced, this is a mass social phenomenon. Don't take it personally. Remember to take time spent out under the sky. Listen to the land, which has seen it all before. Take time away from the screens to find your inner self. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening again this week and caring about our world, as painful as that can be. (laughs) 